This episode is brought to you by Amazon Studios, presenting The Report. A riveting film that critics are raving is thrilling with razor-sharp dialogue and a perfect cast. Starring Adam Driver, Annette Bening, and John Hamm. In theaters November 15th. It's so wonderful that we are in this position, that we are in a show that has two female leads and... I'm a true believer in speaking into existence what you want. And, you know, I wasn't having a whole lot of luck crossing over from theater into film and TV. I'd known from the inside how difficult it was to uh, feel like you were ever really getting ahead. And it's felt like no matter how many accolades I amassed, I still couldn't make that translate. So nice to hear that, that so many people loved it. <laughs> it's a bit like, oh, damn it. Maybe she shouldn't have waved goodbye at the end. Um, but it does feel right. It does feel right. Wow. For LA Times Studios, I'm Mark Olson, and this is The Real, where culture and entertainment meet. The Emmys were a win for the underdogs, not just for the players and the plot lines, but also for the platforms on which the stories are told. The evening drove home television's continuing creative renaissance and the changing nature of the medium. That conversation is coming up, and we're trying out a couple of changes here at The Real starting this week, including an update on award season from the Times' Glenn Whip. We'll get to that in a minute. But first, this news. When I was a little boy and told people I was going to be a comedian, everyone laughed at me. Well, no one's laughing now. You can say that again, pal. Ahead of the release of the new movie Joker on October 4th, some members of the public, folks outside of Hollywood, seem particularly worried that the film will inspire violence. Director Todd Phillips has said his movie is being held to a double standard, particularly given the violence in other films. And I'm joined now by my colleague, Lorraine Ollie to discuss the public's reaction to a film that so far has only screened at a few film festivals. Now, Lorraine, the families of the victims of the Aurora shooting in 2012 have written a letter to Warner Brothers expressing concern about the film and to ask the studio to use the opportunity to advocate for gun safety. Just as a reminder, the Aurora shooting happened during a screening of the film The Dark Knight Rises, and so there's been sort of a connection between the shooting and the Batman franchise ever since. And now, The Times has written a little bit about this, and Warner Brothers did respond. Lorraine, do you think the fact that Warner Brothers had to respond to the families, does that suggest that the studio really is going to have a difficult time with promoting and releasing Joker? I think the studio has to respond to the families. You know, obviously these families lost loved ones. It's a really, really tricky line to walk for the studio because, yes, as the director pointed out, there's plenty of films that have gun violence, but also they do have to be respectful of these people that lost loved ones. So I think it does speak to some kind of issues they're going to have rolling forward. Um, I'm not sure that it will be difficult releasing the movie. It just depends on where the news goes from now until then. And as we know, things are going very fast now. But for sure, it cannot be good news for the studio to be dealing with this this far ahead of the film. And really, when nobody has really seen it except for people in the industry. Yeah, the film first premiered at the Venice Film Festival, where it won their top award of the Golden Lion. And then it also went on to play at the Toronto International Film Festival. And will also be playing at the New York Film Festival, but it still has, as of now, only been seen by a limited number of people. And so just to read a little bit of the statement from Warner Brothers, they said, Warner Brothers believes that one of the functions of storytelling is to provoke difficult conversations around complex issues. And the statement continues, make no mistake, 
Neither the fictional character Joker nor the film is an endorsement of real-world violence of any kind. It is not the intention of the film, the filmmakers, or the studio to hold the character up as a hero. And now, do you think this is simply sort of a sign of how, frankly, anxious people are in America right now, that because of what feels like the escalating rash of gun violence, mass shootings, do you think this just speaks to sort of the general anxiety of our moment? I do. I do think it speaks to the anxiety. And I think it speaks to also people wanting to try and make sense of why these type of shootings keep happening. Also, the Joker is this character who, even when we were kids, he was scary. He was in your nightmares. He was the loner, the sociopath. And I think he also fits the bill for a boogeyman, right? I mean, that's his role. And I think because of the gun violence, because of what happened when The Dark Knight Rises came out in that theater, those connections are there whether they are justifiable or not. And it does speak to people trying to to look forward, okay, what should I do and what should I not do to stay away from this violence? Because it's in a mall, it's in a school, it's in a theater is there anything that can tell me what not to do next to stay away from this? And maybe it's part of that. I think typically also these issues arise after a movie has opened. People try to draw some connection between a movie and a real-world act of violence. In this case with Joker, I think it's unusual that it seems like it's all preemptive. It's like people are upset about what they think might happen or what the movie might spur. But then also the trailers for it are particularly disturbing, and they should be. It's the Joker. They should be disturbing, and Heath Ledger was disturbing as the Joker, and now it's Joaquin Phoenix. And filmmaker Todd Phillips, who director and co-writer of the film, gave an interview this week to the Associated Press where he was asked about some of these concerns, and he expressed a somewhat of a dismay at the fact that he feels Joker is being singled out when he pointed to, for example, the recent film John Wick 3, which is extremely violent and didn't inspire this sort of concern. And now reviewing the film Out of Venice, LA Times film critic Justin Chang said that Joker is a dark, realist thriller in comic book drag. It is bleak, troubling, and damnably accomplished. And I think that may speak to why some of the reason why the movie is being, in a sense, singled out it perhaps in a way may be too successful. I think those trailers that people have seen so far are disturbing and have been both upsetting, but also oddly thrilling and enticing. It's an advertisement after all, so it's wanting to get people to want to see this movie. And I think that it's served that purpose and perhaps in some way Warner Brothers is getting more than they bargained for by having this level of excitement and anticipation around the movie. Right. And I think the idea that this film, or at least the trailers, don't have that comic book sheen about them. They don't have that superhero sheen that you often see with 99% of the films that are out right now. It's interesting. Another Warner Brothers release, the Oliver Stone film Natural Born Killers, is having its 25th anniversary this year. There's actually going to be an anniversary screening here in Los Angeles that Stone and the stars Juliette Lewis and Woody Harrelson are going to be attending. I've been doing some interviews for that myself. And it's interesting where at the time that film took a lot of blame for incidents of real world violence. There actually was a lawsuit that was filed against Warner Brothers and Stone from it. And so this is certainly not the first time that this has happened, even to this studio, this is not the first time that this sort of, like, people trying to draw connections between a movie and real-world violence has, has happened. Right. You know, there's a history of this, right? With Taxi Driver, people blaming that, and as you're saying, natural-born killers, video games, just 
pick one. That's a constant boogeyman. And it's not as if this violence somehow started when film did or when television did or when video games did. It's trying to find a bigger societal ill that is causing this to happen, because if we can do that, then we can fix it. And I think we will be continuing to talk about Joker here on The Real, ahead of the movie's opening on October 4th. And Lorraine, sit tight. We're going to switch gears and have a conversation about the Emmys. I will be here. And now let's go to Glenn Whip's Awards Minute. And now we recently had three of the big fall film festivals that are already over. But on the day that this episode is going to be coming out, the New York Film Festival will just be launching. And it's recently become something of a sneaky Oscar launch pad. So, Glenn, I want to talk to you about the New York Film Festival. You're going to be actually attending this year. Is that right? I am. You know, all the people who say, well, these Netflix movies, do I want to see them in the theater? I'm flying five hours to go see a Netflix movie in a theater in New York. And now which movie is that? This would be The Irishman, Martin Scorsese, mob epic that reunites him with Robert De Niro, Pacino for the first time, Joe Pesci is back, the whole gang. How could you not go to New York to see this movie? And now that's going to be the world premiere of the movie, and it is, I think, at this point, very anticipated. It's definitely an anticipated award season movie. I mean, anything Scorsese does is an immediate Oscar contender, even the genre films, and especially something like this, which has a three and a half hour running time, almost as long as the plane ride to New York. It's really, I'm fingers crossed. And now tell me a little bit about the New York Film Festival with regards to award season. For the longest time, they really sort of did not have any real relation to award season. They simply didn't show those kinds of movies. Over the last few years, they've been premiering often the world premiere of like one or two sort of much anticipated titles that maybe are like kind of like the last few pins to drop in award season. Where do you see the New York Film Festival as fitting into that landscape? Yeah, I think the New York Film Festival has such a great reputation as being a really prestigious festival to launch a movie. I mean, it's always really beautifully programmed, a lot of interesting titles. And so I think now studios kind of see this as an opportunity to maybe hold a movie till the end of September. And sometimes it's a movie that's not quite ready for Telluride or Toronto or Venice. And so you get that prestigious launch pad still in New York. It's a great place. And for The Irishman, you know, again, it's the Scorsese-New York connection. It just seems like the perfect place to launch that particular movie. And I can't wait to find out and hear back about how everything goes with The Irishman. Thanks, Mark. And now we're going to recap this past week's Emmys broadcast. And so joining me to do that, we have Times TV editor Matt Brennan. Hey, Mark. Times TV reporter Yvonne Villarreal. Hello. And still with us is Times TV critic Lorraine Ollie. Hello. So, Lorraine, you wrote a fantastic piece at sort of wrapping up the Emmys on Sunday night, and you really talked about how you felt that this year, it felt like a real celebration of the moment, of kind of where TV is at. Can you tell me a little bit more about that idea? Sure. I think the Emmys in the past have been, at least in the last 15 years, just struggling to like figure out where we are. It always felt like it was a catch up or they were trying too hard. 
And this year, I felt like they really embraced the moment that we're in by picking a very wide variety of series and winners. Some of them surprises, some of them not. You had Fleabag, Jodie Comer winning for a drama actress. All these things that you did not think were going to happen, happen. And finally, they're like, wow, the Emmys were actually my Emmys this time. They were not that other Emmys where you're like, what the fuck? <laughs> four. You meant four? What the four? Yeah. Good place. What mm-hmm. the four? Matt, what were your feelings on the winners this year? It felt to me like this was the first year where Emmy voters, consciously or unconsciously, responded to the conversation that was happening online, both on social media and in the more traditional digital media. Fleabag is a show that had been critically acclaimed for its first season, which aired back in 2016 on Amazon Prime, but had not really sort of gone beyond critical acclaim. This season, it really broke out. Emmy voters really responded to that in a kind of organic way that, as Lorraine says, hasn't always been the case in the past. I think that on the flip side of that, and Glenn Whip did a really smart analysis column on this, The Game of Thrones conversation was about how bad the final season was and how much it disappointed critics and fans. And I think it's possible to say that potentially that narrative dampened enthusiasm for the final season among voters. Having Emmy voters be responsive to what fans and critics are talking about makes them feel like they're at least trying to engage in what's happening now instead of rubber stamping what they've been into for previous years. And it's only by being willing to sort of adapt and evolve that the Emmys are going to continue to remain relevant in a TV conversation. Whether that extends to saving the ratings of the actual Emmy ceremony broadcast is another matter. But the Emmys are not alone in that struggle. But I think that conversation about its relevancy is very interesting because you say it's adapting to the taste of the consumer. But at the same time, Despite the ratings being like at an all time low, it has I'll use my mom as an example. She was like, after the show, should I be watching Fleabag? I've never heard of Fosse Ferdin. Should I be watching that? Because we're in peak TV, it's like opening up people to like, oh, these are these shows that I haven't even attempted to try or didn't even know about. And I'm learning about them and I'm going to spend time with them because clearly they're good. And The night that the LGBT community was having, I mean, who would have ever thought a show like Pose would, one, ever get made to reach this kind of status? And Billy Porter, I mean, he'll be the first to tell you, like, he never expected this. He didn't even think a show like Pose could happen for him, let alone an Emmy. So to seize on this moment, but also reflect on Yes, we're in the mainstream. The trans community has hit the mainstream. But at the same time, like that doesn't negate that there are still issues and that nothing is perfect just because you see us on TV. We're still battling real things. And the fact that he quoted James Baldwin up there was so powerful. The idea of being pushed out, being an outsider, being held down, and then here I am up here. Mm -hmm. It was kind of an amazing moment. I also think like a big moment was when Jarell Jerome won for When They See Us and Limited Series, and he dedicated the award to the Exonerated Five, which were formerly referred to in the press as the Central Park Five. And who were there in the room? Yeah, Those men were actually in the audience, and they stood up, and it was a really moving moment. But it was also a reminder that a lot of what was in the Limited Series was based on real stories, Mm -hmm. was based on real people. 
And I think in previous years at the Oscars and even the Emmys, people have brought whoever it is, you know, Tanya Harding, whoever it is. And it was just kind of a reminder, like this incredibly moving series. Yes, we knew it was about real people. But when they're standing there in the audience, it really brings it home. And I thought that was an amazing moment. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Studios, presenting Honey Boy, an emotional coming-of-age film that critics are calling a cinematic act of courage and nothing short of miraculous, starring Shia LaBeouf, Lucas Hedges, and Noah Jupe, in theaters November 8th. I'm wondering about the nature of the Motion Picture Academy, the people who go out the Oscars. They've been making all these changes to the membership and the demographics, and that's an attempt to change the kind of movies that get Oscars. What's spurring these changes by the TV Academy? Like, who are they the same people who are now voting for different shows? So we have done some sort of preliminary looking at that. For one thing, the Television Academy has 24,000-plus members, which means it's much, much larger than the Film Academy. It would require a much larger initiative to really seriously change the demographics. I think it's actually more likely that what has happened in an ecosystem where there are 500 or more original scripted series is that it takes less for an individual series to get enough support to land a nomination and a win. Because the allegiances of the voters can be so much more divided than the era in which the big three networks gained all of the nominations. And I think that that is in some ways what explains, one, the number of years now where the Emmy categories sort of have an an accordion effect, where if enough people get close to the lowest vote-getter, they can get included in the category. So I think we're seeing that happen more frequently, in part because of this dividing of the vote. And what that does is it it puts a show like Fleabag in the conversation. Fleabag got 11 nominations and then has three months where Emmy voters can catch up with it. And because of the nature of Fleabag being six half-hour episodes each season, Emmy voters can actually realistically be expected to go and binge the entire series and see what it's about. I think that actually probably proved to be a big advantage for both that and Chernobyl, which won three awards for limited series and was also five episodes each an hour long, totally manageable. And this is where limited series, I think, have a lot of the heat in the Emmy race this year, and it will probably continue in the future, is like those are the shows that you can bite off what you can chew. It's a lot harder to say, I'm going to go and catch up on three seasons of This Is Us before Mm -hmm. Emmy voting happens. But the limited series this year also was full of A1 talent. You had Jared Harris... Chernobyl, Benicio Del Toro, Escape of Danamora. I hate to say this because I think television is actually better than film now, but they were much more cinematic. And I think there was more money dumped into those. And I think there was just more talent dumped into those. So that was such a tricky category. But Yvonne, I love that your mom asked you, should I watch Fleabag? Because I would be like, no, 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 don't watch it. It's really good. But no, not for you. It's uh-huh. not good for you. <laughs> I think that's what we're no, looking at here. No, I told her here. to watch it. Hot Priest. Wow. Oh, my gosh. Now, Yvonne, you were in the room at the Emmy Awards. Did you feel— We're using quote marks around what that means. Explain. (laughs) So I had tickets to the show, but for the purposes of our coverage, I spent a lot of my time in the lobby area, in the concession stand area, trying to talk to people, just to, like, talk to some of the stars to get their thoughts on the show itself. But can you give me some sense of the vibe? Like, I think in particular, in retrospect, you want to feel that there was almost this, like, tension between the sort of, like, 
coronation, the finale of Veep or say Game of Thrones, mm -hmm. and then this air of like freshness that was coming through with all the prizes for Fleabag. Did you feel that in the room? Like what was the vibe as those awards were being given out? In particular with like Julia Louis-Dreyfus, no one can deny that her performance on that show every season is amazing. But at the same time, it's like, Okay, if she couldn't win, I'm so glad it's Phoebe because that performance is amazing too and it's unexpected and that's why it's great because we're so used to what's expected. And yeah, you got the sense being outside of people like, I need to get back in, I need to get back in. And it's hard because you're only let back in during commercial breaks, so you're missing stuff and everyone wanted to be in there because things started out with so much being different. But from my perspective... An award show is only as interesting as the awards that are handed out. And I thought that the Emmys did as well this year in terms of mixing things up and feeling like they were fresh and forward-thinking, as I can remember. Yeah, I thought, and Game of Thrones didn't sweep like it was supposed yeah, to either, yeah. right? I thought that was what was great about it, because it was awkward, but TV is in this really weird place, right? And so I think it just illustrated that when Game of Thrones cast is standing up there looking like it's <laughs> awkward, they don't know what to do with their hands. It's like, well, because the world has changed, you know, and I think nobody knew how that was going to settle and it was happening before your eyes. And that's what was so great about the ceremony. But now give me some sense of what you think happened, maybe in particular with Veep, why it ended up not winning. Is it, Matt, was it just a fact of like, they have won many awards many times before, even though this was their final season, the sort of shiny and new aspect of Fleabag, Veep couldn't get past that with voters. I think that's part of it. I have a suspicion that as strong as the final season of Veep was, because it was a little bit truncated compared to previous seasons, because it was delayed a year for Julia Louis-Dreyfus to receive cancer treatment, because in that time period, the insanity of actual politics has continued to overtake it. I don't think Veep feels quite as bracing as it did in sort of its peak middle seasons. I think that in a way, Veep in its final years started to feel less ahead of what was happening in politics and more following what was happening in politics in a way that Fleabag, by contrast, the subplot with the hot priest played by Andrew Scott and the way that Fleabag dealt with grief and sex and humor and bitterness felt like something I had never seen on television before. And I think that, that maybe voters were responding to that sort of edge. I also just think it might just be that a lot of voters just assumed Veep had it in the bag. So why don't I just vote for someone else? Yeah, that hasn't happened before yeah. on a bigger scale. Mm -mm. Yeah. No. Yeah. I, I think that's part of it. They got it. So why don't I try something new? Enough people will vote for it or something. I don't know. But I think if you also look at the last three Emmys, Veep winning, right? And then The Marvelous Miss Maisel winning, Rachel Brosnahan, and then here we have Fleabag. Look at those three characters. And when you look at Selena Meyer, totally, incredibly ambitious, if not completely incompetent, but whatever. Incredibly ambitious, all about moving forward, all about presentation. Okay, so then you look at Maisel, and she's perfect. Everybody likes her. She's that girl. She's totally put together, perky. She's likable. 
Then you get Fleabag, and Fleabag is a mess. Fleabag's like rolling out into the street in her pajamas. She's been with whoever. And I think she's kind of a reflection of where everybody is right now. It's like, oh my God, like I can't even hold it together anymore. It's just been such a damn chaotic last year or whatever it is. I think she represents feeling like stuff is falling apart and needing to pull it back together again. But they're all three very different characters. And I love it that there's enough space to have such different characters with all these female leads. It's interesting to me that our conversation, and I think most of the conversation around the night, actually ended up focusing on the comedy categories, Mm -hmm. which were vastly stronger, in my opinion, this year than the drama series categories. Definitely. And I think it reflects a sort of moment, and this happened cyclically, But in the era since sort of the last of the golden age of TV, quote-unquote, hour-long dramas like Breaking Bad and Mad Men, and maybe if you include them, say, The Americans, came to an end, there's been a real absence of hour-long, ongoing drama series that have driven the cultural conversation in the same way that limited series and comedy series have. And I think the sort of narratives that emerged around the Emmy telecast really fit into that moment that we're in. All the heat seems to be, creatively, seems to be in half-hour comedies. And there's just a lot of risk-taking happening in comedies and limited series. The only shows that really felt to me like they were doing something really bold in the seasons that they were nominated for were the first season of Pose, which was nominated for Best Drama, and Billy Porter won, and the first season of Succession, which was nominated for Best Drama and won for Best Writing in an Upset Over... Game of Thrones and Better Call Saul. I totally disagree with Succession, but yes. (laughs) (laughs) Why? Oh, I will tell you why. I understand that many people love it, but I have to say, I feel like I have seen that a million times before, not just on television, but in reality of the rich white family, Mm -hmm. the moguls, the infighting. And I just, you know, I tried and I've tried and I don't understand what the appeal of that is because I feel like I've seen it before and I don't want to watch these people again. And it's an old idea. Dallas was on a really long time ago (laughs) and there was families fighting. And it's just like, I don't see what the appeal of that is right now, particularly like when you're talking about Veep feels like it's almost chasing culture. I feel like Succession feels like it's chasing culture because we've been watching this family dynasty, whatever you want to say, if it's the Murdochs, if it's the Trumps, whatever it is. And I don't feel like they're pushing it to another level, but I do find it interesting that it has made the impact that it has. I feel like as much as people will say that they're tired of the 1% Mm -hmm. ruling everything as much, they still want to watch Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous and they still want to watch Rich People's Problems. And I feel like that's what it is and it's nothing new. I think this might be a great way to kind of bring it back to the Emmys and that I I keep thinking about... Sorry. Good what, for no, you, no. Mark. Good for no, you, no, no, no. Because I want to be sure that we cover if there are any other highlights from the, yes. the Emmys broadcast this year. I think in particular, Yvonne, you mentioned oh, the speech okay. from Michelle Williams, yeah. which I want to be sure that we talk about as far as maybe how that was received. You know, I know you weren't in the room yeah, when I it happened. Yeah, I didn't hear it, but I, I mean, people were already transcribing the speech and posting it on Twitter. I mean, I loved what she said. If it was this difficult for me, a white woman in a privileged industry, how difficult is it for women of color across all industries? As a woman of color, that she is not, but I am. I was sort of interested 
seeing how men reacted to her speech versus women has been interesting. Like I've had a few people say it feels weird that she's advocating for this as a white woman. And her sort of saying, I needed this, I needed this to do my job, like, what's the big deal? And I'm kind of like, it's because you come from a place of privilege where you don't understand how it is harder for a woman to ask and also receive the things that she needs to do her job the way it should be done. Right. I mean, I totally agree with you. And the idea that here she is up there saying that, and there's a thing about your worth in the workplace, whether you are in a studio, whether you're on a set, And that worth is shown in how much you're paid. Mm -hmm. And if you, as a woman, the way that you are treated face to face, it's problematic in the workplace. So at least when you get that pay and it's bumped up, you know there's something there that is reflecting the hard work you're doing, the good work you're doing, even if when you're dealing with people face to face, it's still a demeaning thing. Well, and even when you're an actress, yes, there's the Same status thing. that you come with, but you still have to endure a lot of inequality. And the things that you need to do your job for her, if it costs money, it costs money. But if you want me to succeed in what I'm delivering to you, if you want this Emmy, give me what I need. Well, I was so impressed that the speech was so polished that it was, I mean, it was such a, she I saw more than one person say she deserves an Emmy for her Emmy acceptance speech. That you see some people through the night sort of like not prepared, surprised, sort of stumbling through their speech. That she came up there and was really had something she wanted to say, said in this very clear and direct way. It related to her experiences making the program she'd won the award for. So I think for a lot of people, it made more sense than, let's say, Patricia Arquette's speech, Mm -hmm. where she advocated for trans Mm -hmm. rights, which is a wonderful thing. It was very personal to her. Mm -hmm. But some people, it it was a little bit of a question mark. It's like, well, what does this have to do with the award that you just won with Michelle? It just made so much sense. And it it really felt, I I appreciated so much that she seized the moment in the way that she did. Mm -hmm. And also the character that she played being pushed in the gr- yeah, background. Yeah, the background, being, exactly, yeah. right. Uh-huh. Matt, it was there a moment at the Emmys that was really like a personal favorite? So maybe some, whether it's something we've talked about already or not, like was there a moment to you that really stood out that sort of encapsulated the night? We have a great photo gallery of this. Jodie Comer uh, <laughs> was not the favorite in her category. Her co-star, Sandra Oh, was the favorite. I think if you ask most Emmy predictors, Jodie Comer's face at the moment that she found out that she had won the award, I think was my highlight of the night and also the one that came closest to reflecting the look on my face (laughs) as the Emmys (laughs) unspooled. Like looking in a mirror. Which was, yes, which was like shock and dismay and excitement and... What do I do now? What do I do now? All wrapped up in one. So that felt like a very (laughs) good sort of crystallization of that for me. Well, with that, we're going to wrap up this conversation about the Emmys. So why don't you tell folks where they can find you and your work online, Matt? I'm on Twitter at The Filmgoer. This is Yvonne, and you can find me on Twitter at Villarilli. And you can find me on Twitter at Lorraine Ollie. And, uh, of course, I'm at Indie Focus. And so for LA Times Studios and The Real, I'm Mark Olson. Thanks for listening. Thanks to our producer, Katie Cooper, our engineer, Mike Heflin, and LA Times Studios. Listen to The Real on Apple, Spotify at latimes.com slash podcasts, or wherever you get your audio. If you like what you hear, please give us a five-star review. 